people think that I might be the person who made Malala. But I tell people that parenthood is not like an engineering that you build something. You make something and it's there. Parenthood is inspiration. You inspire your children because every parent is a kind of teacher as well. So in our home, it was like father, like daughter. I never told Malala that she should be speaking for her right of education and she should stand up. She could see me that I was speaking. I tell people that don't ask me what I did for her. Ask me what I did not do. I didn't clip her wings. You're listening to Ziauddin Yousafzai, the father of Malala Yousafzai, the youngest Nobel laureate ever. Malala, who was named after a Pashtun warrior, almost lost her life fighting for girls' right for education. How do you raise a warrior and an activist? And what do you do when all of that almost falls apart in front of your very own eyes? This was a very emotional conversation with an inspiring and a very thoughtful and loving parent. We talked about how mentorship, life circumstances, personal values, and education shape our kids' life. We recorded this conversation remotely due to COVID-19, and so the sound can be choppy at times. I encourage you to look beyond that as the Odin shared golden pieces of advice that many of us parents can learn a lot from. I'm Guy Michelin, and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators, and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week, we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. Hello, Zia Odin, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you, and I want to start... Your daughter is the youngest Nobel laureate ever. And so I wonder if we talk about your proudest moment, is that the time she won the Nobel Prize? There are many moments that she has made me proud. Even before she was attacked, when we were living in Swat, her little achievements, like being one of the brightest girls in her classroom and her empathy, which she showed at a very young age, like when she used to see poor girls and boys picking uh, metallic items from the garbage and then selling them. And when she used to come to home and tell me, oh, my father, we have to admit these children in school, why they are not in school and they are involved in this child labor. So many, many moments like the first time spoke to UN uh, on her 16th birthday, that was a moment when she said that uh, one child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. That was a great moment for me, and I was feeling strange. I was thinking that the girl who had almost lost her life for the right of girls to be going to school, the same girl who Taliban did not want that she should be studying in a local school, in a street school, in Mengora, in Swat, now she is standing there on this international forum at this podium, and she's raising her voice again. And the girl who was speaking for 50,000 girls when Taliban banned girls' education in the Swat Valley, the same girl is speaking and raising her voice once again for 130 million girls all around the world. So that was a moment really that gave me a great pride and, of course, the Nobel Peace Prize. But one moment that I will never forget that made me cry 
the proudest moment of my life that when we went to Oxford, my wife and my son and myself, we accompanied Malala and we had an introductory meeting with the Oxford uh, Lady Margaret Hart principal and his staff. After having meals, we went to a bigger room and there the principal went to make tea. I thought that he was making tea for himself. But then he came across the room and went to the other side and he offered the cup of tea to Malala. And that was a moment that took me back to my whole life. I didn't see a man offering a cup of tea to a woman, to a girl. And then a teacher giving such a huge respect to his would-be student. I was so grateful that, yes, now this is a change that I'm seeing. I think that's a a great transition to talk about your childhood. You grew up in a very patriarchal society and and sounds like also in a patriarchal family. And in a way, you went to the other extreme because today and throughout your life, you're essentially promoting women and girls' education. And also your daughter is following you on this personal journey. So I'm curious, from your personal perspective, how did you do this journey? Patriarchy, which men have learned for centuries, or to unlearn it, it will take generations. I still learn, to be honest. I want to live with these values of equality and values of justice and equal opportunities for women and men. So this always is there. But I'm lucky that as a child, I could see things which were wrong and I realized that they were wrong and they should be corrected. I grew up with five sisters and an older brother and I could see two sets of parenthood under the same roof. I was given tea with the cream of milk and I had better food, more pair of clothes and shoes and my sister did not have. And the worst discrimination that my sisters went through were deprivation from education. I was sent to school and my sister did not have that opportunity. And I will not just blame my parents for that because the government was also kind of patriarchal. There were quite many schools for boys, but hardly any school for the girls. So these were the things which I could see. And I might have enjoyed it in the beginning. But later on, when I realized, because I myself faced some kind of discrimination because of my color, I was dark in color. And some teachers, not all teachers, they prefer fair-skinned boys. I have this issue of stammering. And I was bullied by some of my cousins and my peers because of this stammering. And I didn't want that somebody with some special needs or somebody because of a poor background should be mistreated. So I was very mindful of discrimination and inequality and all that. And what changed me was education. So if I had not been educated, to be honest, I would have been like any other person of a patriarchal society who believes in all those social norms and taboos and who believes that daughter should be somebody who should always stay inside the four walls to protect her honor. She should be married as early as possible and a wife should be in your control all the time and she should not be seen by anyone outside. 
the family are you I have two follow up questions on this that relates to the way you describe your childhood first it seemed like you had this thirst for education from very early on and that's yes. something that's very important for me that my kids will have it and I keep asking myself what is my role as a parent here to instill this thirst for education in my kids so I'm very curious where is it coming from I was not born with this my father was a clerk in mosque he was also teacher in the school in the high school where i received my education from and he was a great lover of education and he loved learning he used to tell me that look zauddin this nature this world is an open book read it similarly my mother and she was very interesting because she was illiterate herself she never went to school the only reading she could do was that she could read the holy quran the holy book of muslims that's it but she was also very keen about education because she knew that she had five daughters and they were in terms of future plans they were nowhere in the future plan i was their only hope that i will receive education and she was so keen of education for me and she used to tell me the stories of people who were poor and they had a big success in their lives because of education it also depends on your environment on your circumstances in some communities education becomes the only way out if you want to survive or if you want to do something in life the only opportunity that you have is education because i didn't belong to a feudal family i didn't belong to a family who had industries i was the son of a teacher so we were hardly able to meet our basic needs so to have a brighter future or to be more resourceful to be more respected in the community education was the only thing and it had been told to me by my father and mother again and again i wanted to make them happy and that's why i was very keen and i also was very interested to learn it's such a, an important point so i, I just want to ask one more question around that for the parents out there that are trying to figure out okay how do i take what ziadin just said and convert it into my day to day to actually instill this thirst for education i think two things may help number one your children learn what you do not what you teach so right. basically if we want to have the values and the things that we want to see in our children so we should ourselves try and we should be practicing all those things it's very simple if you want them to be speaking truth you should speak truth if you want them to be good in sports we should for that sake we should involve them in sports somehow if we want to be respectful and if you want any quality in our family so if i tell my both of my sons i am so happy that they are feminist and they thoroughly believe in feminism in equality but i never just taught them like teaching from a book i'm telling it you should do it no the way to teach them feminism or equality was so simple it was how i treat my wife and how my wife treats me mm. 
So we are equal partners. And when they see that there is nothing superior in any of us while we live together, we both respect one another with love. And that love, it goes into them without being told to them. So that's one thing. Second thing, I think that could inspire children are stories, good books. I remember that my father used to tell me the stories of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, the stories of Bacha Khan, who was a Pashtun freedom fighter and who believed in non-violence. Some stories from Islamic history of people who were very kind and who did great things in their lives. So stories also help. But again, it's a challenge because uh, you can't put your children in artificial situation where they don't see any real challenge. For me, the real challenge was how to come out of that poverty. The problem is that children are usually, we see meaninglessness in their lives. It's their right to enjoy but there should be some meaning in life that how we would be leading our lives in future because it's a fun, but with fun, there are some liabilities and some responsibilities as well. But I don't have really some fix. I think it depends on the children. It depends on the environment our children and we live in. And then we ourselves as parents, we discover ways and means how to channelize the potentials of our children in the right way. So how to motivate them to the good company, to live their lives in a purposeful way to a great extent, to have some ambition in life. That's so much important. So I have one more question regarding your childhood. You have a quote there in the book that I think your mother told your father that you will never be happy in your life. And in general, the way you describe your dad, and I might be wrong, but it reminded me my dad in a way that he always looked at the glass half empty. And it seems that you're the opposite. For me, it took me almost 30 years to to slightly do the transition from empty to full. And so I really, I'm really, really curious how did you manage to grow up in a house which was empty and to grow up to be full? And how do you teach this to kids? You're very right. My father, like he was comparatively well to do in that village life because he was a teacher. He used to get quite good salary that could fulfill our basic needs and requirements for living. Not a very high-fi life, but at least a moderate life. But still, most of the time, he used to be unhappy. And his unhappiness made me unhappy. So one of my childhood desires used to be that, would that I could see my father happy? And believe me, Guy, when I used to see a smile on his face, it filled my heart with joy. I wanted to live in a happy family life, which was not available all the time. I should not speak ill of my father, but he was like, sometime I was feeling that he was an enemy of his own happiness. And that made me kind of reactionary, the opposite of him in terms of having happiness in my life and making other people happy as much as I can. Now, together with my wife, we were able to create 
a family that believes in equality, that believes in love and respect for everyone. And our family is like a small democratic institution where everybody can express oneself, herself, himself. And happiness is the soul of our family life. So I, I can't ag- agree more that happiness is kind of the soul of the family, like you say. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I want to fast forward a little bit. So you get married, your wife's Tur Pekai. You have three kids. And then in your book, you, you talk about unspoken values and spoken values. And I wonder, were you deliberate in what you wanted for the family, the principles, the values that you two decided to raise the kids by? Or The success of our story is the transformation from a patriarchal family into an egalitarian family. Together, we were able to create a family that believes in equality, a family that believes in equal rights for a girl and for a boy. And these things happened with passage of time. I remember when I got newly married and Torpekai came to our home. So we have our tradition that a woman used to bring the water with a pot and before eating we used to wash our hands but a woman helped us washing our hands but when I got married and we were sitting at the table and Torpeka my wife she was moving around the table to get everybody wash his hand when she reached to me I stopped her and I told her no I will wash my hands myself you're not supposed to help me in washing my hands so that was the beginning of a change. And then she was surprised a little bit that, oh, what this guy's doing? He's crazy. <laughs> My little encouragement was huge for her because later on, after two, three years, when we started living together, she was uh, living her life different from other women in the society. She was able to go to hospital to take children. She was able to go to marketplace, shopping. My friend's Wives used to observe Parda well from me, uh, but my wife could meet many of my friends. And she also used to talk to the male teachers of the school, which I started. So that way, we were starting a new life with better values, values of freedom and emancipation. So two more questions about this period. One, is there anything that you think was unusual in the way that you raised the kids? Other families didn't do at that time. One thing that could be, you can call it that it was special with my parenthood, that I never imposed myself on my children. I let them to be free in their views, in their ideas. I encouraged them to be expressing themselves. I never expected them to be too much obedient to me. Like, I'm your father and you have always to listen to me and I will be guiding you all the time. I let them to have their own kind of experience and thinking and I always appreciated whatever they said. And I encourage them to be creative. I encourage them to be speaking up. I encourage them to be sharing things with others who are deprived in the society. So I focused on values of life. And if I'm asked that, 
what was the best thing or what is the best thing that you could give to your children. So I will say values, the value of love, the value of respect, the value of tolerance and the value of equality, the value of justice and the value of respecting people and humanity indifferent to their caste, creed, religion, color. I'm so happy that my children are so sensitive and cautious that when they see any comment or any remark that implies the meaning of some discrimination, they're very angry. And that anger really gives me happiness that, yes, I have children who believes in humanity and who believes in equal rights and who believes in equal respect for all genders, all colors, all ethnicities, and all languages. Last question about this period when the kids were young. What was the routine at the house? And was there anything there in that routine that you would feel that other parents should adopt? It's changed here in the UK. But in Pakistan, I think that those were the early years where you build your family and you build the values of the family. Like when we were leaving Pakistan at that time, Malala was 15, my older son was 12, and my younger son was 8. So all of them were in a building stage. So one thing that we were very keen about that we used to have breakfast together, lunch together, and playing together also. So I think I will insist on togetherness and also celebrating children's achievements. So your few words or a small gift means the world to them. So these were, I mean, common practices that we did as well. I don't see anything special, to be honest. I think it's special, like even just having breakfast and lunch as a family every day. In these days, it's not that obvious. Yeah. Even that is special. I want to move forward in time to the period uh, 2007 to 2012 when Malala was attacked. So to kind of to set the stage for 2012, would you mind just describing for the listeners a little bit what was it like when Taliban came into Pakistan? Actually, it was not the whole country. It was the part of Pakistan, which is in the northwest of Pakistan and the Swat Valley and then the border region towards Afghanistan. It's the Pashtun region. So before Taliban, Swat Valley, Swat is very beautiful. We always say that it's a paradise on earth. So that beautiful valley, which was like a center of tourism, and we had a lot of cultural heritage sites. But in that beautiful valley, when Taliban started their insurgency, in 2004 and 5, they started from an FM radio. So the radio mullah, that mullah, he started giving sermons, speeches from an FM radio, and he started speaking against polio drops, and he started speaking against girls' education. And he met this big center on the river, on the bank of river, and people rushed towards him. And gradually, it was escalating, And later on in 2007, he became very violent and they started bombing school and they started burning CD shops like audio, video, music centers. And in 2008, December, 
he announced that the girls are not supposed to be going to school. So that was the end of girls' education in the Swat Valley at that time. And they bombed more than 400 schools. And it was such a hard time that in January 2009, every morning until January 2015, they used to put a corp, a dead body upside down in the squares and leaving a notice on their chest uh, or in their body that nobody can touch this body until 10 a.m. or some time. So it was horrible. They used to pick people from their homes, especially the people who spoke against Taliban. They used to name them on their FM radio. They even named me. Mm. And I remember that for some days, I had to go to my friend's home to spend night over there. Because for me, I had this horrible thought that if they kill me in front of my children, in front of my wife, I will be gone. But my children would never be able to come out of their trauma. And they will be suffering forever. So during all this time, you were super vocal. I was trying to put myself in your shoes. You have three young kids. How do you find this courage to go out and speak, knowing that you can be killed for that and you're going to have three kids and a wife left behind? My simple answer is that your rights inspire you, your rights motivate you, and your human dignity in such situations inspire you to stand up. This depends on the person and this depends on our values. What do we believe in? So being a teacher who was taught by one's father, like my father, who always told me the stories of Bacha Khan and Gandhiji and I read something about Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, all those great leaders. And reading about them, reading about human dignity, freedom, liberty. And when you have all these values, you want to live on this planet with all your basic rights, your freedom of expression, your freedom of thought, and with your full-fledged human dignity. And all of a sudden, some people come and they're called Taliban, and they say, no, you have to live your life is vivish. You have to be the kind of Muslim that we want. We want you to be the kind of man that we want. You should grow a beard. Your shirt should be of uh, this kind, no collars. It should be plain. Your trousers should be up the ankles, and you should not listen to the music you are not supposed to talk about the cultural heritage and the statues of Buddha. Your wife is not supposed to be going to the market and your daughter is going to be stopped from going to school. Just imagine, how can a man like me will accept this kind of life or this kind of code of life? So then you remain with two options. First option is to live in an eternal forever subjugation of those few bigots with guns and rifles. And the second option is to speak up and then die. So I think I chose the second option. I had to speak. This was me. I can't explain really, guy. And if you put me in the same situation again, I will speak again. I simply can't help myself. I may be crazy. I may be mad. But what I believe in, I must stand for it. I will never compromise 
my basic rights, my freedom, my human dignity under any name for anyone at any condition. A very inspiring. October 9th, 2012, Malala is being attacked. I'm sure it was a traumatic and hard day. Can you take us back to this day? How did the day unfold? It was in the morning. It was uh, like a normal day, like all other days. We had our breakfast together and then she rushed to school. I also went to school. And in the middle of the day, I had to leave the school and come to the gathering of private school association where I was the president of the school association and I was the final speaker. And exactly right around 12 p.m., the bus was attacked and the news spread like a fire in the jungle and somebody called my assistant and then he tried to call me on my phone, but my phone was off because I was about to give my speech and then he called my friend and he told him on phone. So my friend whispered in my ear that your school bus has been attacked. And really it was a shocking and uh, kind of news that it devastated me uh, right there. I went to the stage and I speak few words because I didn't know that it was Malala who was attacked. I just finished my speech quickly and then we rushed towards the hospital and I received another phone from a different friend and he told me that Malala and two other girls have been shot. They are in the hospital, they are in the ICU. It was the hardest time. Like I was feeling that I'm being swallowed up by a black hole and even I forgot how to cry. I didn't cry that day. I was a blank slate. And then we left Swat to Peshawar and into Islamabad and she got her initial life-saving surgeries in Peshawar. And then she got post-surgery intensive care in Islamabad. And ultimately after, you can say, five, six days, she was flown to the UK. And since then, we are here. But of course, it was the most difficult time in our lives. And it's very retrospection is traumatic, to be honest. Very, very difficult. Any advice for parents that go through traumatic phases like this? What can they do? And also, I'm curious, once Malala started to recover, how did you help her? Where did you and she found the strength to get out of this trauma? I will highlight two things. Number one, family. We are very lucky that we have this institution. I think the greatest achievement of human beings is that they have created families and they believe in family life. From my personal story, if I can tell with assurance that togetherness and the wholeness of the family, it can defeat any trauma. It can defeat any difficulty in life. We lift everybody in Pakistan, our friends, cousins, parents, sisters, brothers. That was one part of deprivation, being like deserted. But in spite of all those separations, our family was together. The second important thing was community. We found very supportive, friendly, considerate and kind community in the UK. They help us in all kinds of our rehabilitation, in the educational rehabilitation of my children, in the physical rehabilitation of my daughter, and in our social rehabilitation. So that's why 
I call UK my second home. And last thing which I want to share is telling stories. People who go through such traumatic situations, they should tell their story. It's so therapeutic when you tell your story. So I remember that when Malala wrote her book with Christina Lam, that was so helpful. Okay, so family, community, and sharing stories. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, that's a great yeah. recipe. Yeah. So I want to turn the page and talk about Malala. And again, if I look at your book, there is a quote there that says, when Malala was very small and she talked of wanting to be a prime minister. So it sounded like from very early age, she had those very big aspirations. And I was just thinking about myself. I didn't know what I want to do, I think, until the age of 30. So I'm curious, how does a small kid develop the very big aspirations? And this will tie back to the follow-up questions about activism and passion, your purpose you talked about. Is that something that you instilled in her? And how can I help my kids at very early age find this purpose in life or aim so high? This came natural. I, when Malala was born as a young baby and I first saw her in her mother's lap, right from that morning, when I looked into her shining star-like beautiful eyes, my heart filled with joy and I felt so proud being father of a daughter. And when my cousin brought me a family tree and I could see that the family tree was comprising and it had all men. It traced back to 400 years with a long list of men, fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers. And I picked up my pen and drew a line from my name and wrote Malala. So that was the moment that I had in my mind that Malala will be known by her own name. She will not be somebody's daughter or somebody's wife or somebody's sister. She will be known by Malala. I didn't know that she will become my introduction and I will be known by her. <laughs> At that time, I named her after the Malala of Mehmand, who was a legendary Pashtun Afghan heroine who in Second Anglo-Afghan War raised her voice and she encouraged the fighters who were fleeing away from the battlefield to come back and fight for their freedom. So that Malala raised her voice and she was known by her own name. I wished a kind of visibility for her. I remember that when I accompanied my mother to the doctor, when I escorted her to the doctor, so the doctor wrote on prescription, Ziauddin's mother. If my father took her, she became wife of Ruhul Amin. It's my father's name. So I was not happy with invisibility. And I always tell that in patriarchal societies, most often women and girls, they die as if they had never been born. Because after 12, 13 years, they stay inside the home, they are deprived from education. And when they are deprived from education, they don't have an opportunity to become themselves. They don't join any jobs. They don't contribute to the social or economic life of the community or political life of their country. And they just remain wives and then they become mothers and grandmothers and that's it. I was against this vicious cycle for a woman. Of course, that is the part of our life. That is a part of men's life as well. We become husbands and then fathers and then grandfathers. That's fine. 
but we do a lot of other things as well. We achieve education and then we become doctors, engineers, pilots, and we become leaders. So that was the beginning of my feminism. And I tell people that I was a feminist long before I knew this world. I heard about the word feminism in the UK. Even I didn't hear this word in Pakistan. I had great dreams for her. No, I don't have a right to dream for her. She is an adult. She will dream for herself. I will just support her as father. But at that time, prime minister is a small thing. I was thinking that she's the queen of the world. It sounds like you had very high dreams for her and that you also talked to her about it and you believed, you conveyed to her that your belief and you believe that she can basically get to be a prime minister. Yeah. The thing is that, I mean, now here is something for the parents from me. And that is that parents, we should be the first people to believe in our children. If we don't believe in them, who else will believe? And when we believe in them, then they believe in themselves. It is so simple. My belief in her came from two perspectives. One, I was father. So, guy, you are a father. You have to believe in your kid. Because if you want her or his great future, that is the way out. But what added to my belief was Malala's personality, the charisma that she brought to this world with her. And as a teacher, as a father, I could see that as well. She inspired me always, always. She always inspired me. You talked before about the importance of kids having purpose. And this ties beautifully to an episode that we did with Professor Damon that wrote the book, The Path to Purpose. And so my question for you is, what practical advice do you have for parents that want to help their kids find their purpose? This is a quite difficult question because... It depends on children, it depends on their environment, on the communities they live in. Personally, I think that we can motivate them through stories. Which kind of stories do you tell the kids? Stories like the stories of those people who lived with a purpose. Nowadays, I'm reading this Stephen Hawking book, and you look into his story, it's such a powerful story. I mean, a man who at quite early age, he becomes a man of special needs and the resilience that he has and the purpose, like it's purpose that it gives him that long life. He lives for a purpose, to be honest. So such stories really inspire. Did you read those stories for the kids? So did you talk about that? How do you convey to the kids? That's what I'm trying I to... I just read and they see that I'm reading this book, so... <laughs> you talk to them about it? Yeah, I tell them and sometimes I give them like, okay, you also should read this book. This is very interesting. Did you start it in the early age and when the kids were yeah. young, you used to tell them stories about people that achieved of greatness? Course, exactly. I told them stories about great people at very early age, like sharing with them. And this is what my father did to me as well. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So so that's a great practical advice. So so the next stage of this, because I'll give you an example. My daughter, Alma, she's 10. 
And she talks a lot about wanting to save the planet and environmental yeah. justice. But there's a huge gap between her talking about it to actually going and doing that, which Malala did that. She actually talked, but she also did. And she, mm-hmm. she rallied people behind her and she went to speak in different forums. I'm with my daughter at the place where we kind of like identified her passion. But the big question now is, okay, how do you help your kids to do the next step and actually start doing something with that so it actually materializes and it doesn't stay as a, as a statement. That is the difficult part of the process. <laughs> I think once they read and they get inspired, like when we go to different gatherings, Malala and I myself, and we are asked by, by young children that what can they do for God's education? So my answer to them is that once they have this passion to do something, once they have this fire in them to do something, then they will find their ways, to be honest. I want to do a follow-up on because this is almost the heart of everything here, because I agree purpose is so important. You're talking about Spark, and Professor Damon also said that our role as a parent is to basically help our kids find their spark. I'm trying to think practically. So I have three kids. I don't think they found the spark. Maybe the oldest one, she talks about environmental justice, but she has not done anything with that. What can I do as a parent first to help them find the spark and then to take the jump and actually do something with it? I wonder if I should be more Mm -hmm. proactive because it sounded like you took Malala with you to a lot of the speeches that you gave and I wonder if you gave her some initial push that helped her to turn it in from a spark to an actual campaign and a journey of life in a way. There is no clear answer for that. And the reason is that she grew in a particular circumstances and untoward situation, which was not normal. We were living our normal life. I was teacher and uh, I believed that my school should be a platform for social change, for girls' education and women empowerment. I taught girls to be disobedient when it comes to their right and they should not agree with their parents if they give their hand at very early age, if they want to get them married at age of 14, 15, and they should respectfully disobey their parents. So I was a teacher, Malala was a student, and because of the Talibanization, which denied girls' right to education, I had to change my role from a teacher to somebody who fights for the right of education. And Malala became a fighter, a campaigner for the right of education. So those were the particular circumstances. It doesn't mean that if there had been no Taliban, there had been no Malala. Because even before Talibanization, we used to go to different far-flung villages. And I used to sit with men. She used to sit with girls and women in the families and like motivating them to admit more and more girls in school. It might what happened 10 years early would have happened 10 years later, but Malala always had this passion to do something in life for the community. And also the most important thing that when think about our neighborhood, about our towns, about our villages, 
that how can we improve the lives of others as well. So a time comes, life is very interesting. Really, it gives opportunity to many of us. Then it depends on us. There's one question I have to ask you. So I see that most of the parents that I interviewed are teachers. And I find it fascinating. I wonder why is that, that a lot of those parents of kids that made it to greatness are teachers? And also, is there anything from that people that are not teachers like me can take from the discipline of educating into the way I parent my kids? Because obviously you guys are doing something right. If you ask me who inspired me in my life, so my answer will be my parents and my teachers. I'll tell you one story that when I was in year seven, grade seven, and at that time, my stammering was more than the stammering I have now. And I asked my father that I want to give a speech in this speech competition in the school. And my father was shockingly surprised that this boy who when talks to me stammers and stutters, stutters, and he is unable to speak one sentence sometimes. It takes quite a time in it. And he's asking that he should write a speech for him. But I insisted and I told him, you write a speech and I'll see. So anyway, my father was a great speaker. Then he wrote a speech for me. I memorized it. And on the day of speech day, when I went to the podium, my eyes were open, but I couldn't see anything. When I finished my speech, I spoke very well. Even I didn't stammer much. And when I came back to the audience area, and I said, so one of my teachers came, and he was our mathematics teacher. And he whispered in my ear, and he told me, Ziauddin, you spread the fire. Wow. Like he said it in Pashto. You spread the fire means you spoke so well. And guy, believe me, his words, you spread the fire. Those four words I still have in my mind, in my heart, and they go with me. They encourage me. They energize me. And they give me strength. So teachers matter. I think we should connect our children to some great teachers. We find people in our community whom we think that they are inspirational. Like if I know that guy is an inspirational person and he can inspire people when people sit with him or her, so I should encourage my son or my daughter to sit with you. I can ask you to become mentor to my son or my daughter. If we find at some stage one or two inspirational teachers they change your lives. Very inspirational, a great thank way you. to end. Thank so thank, thank you. you very much. Thank it was an thank honor. You. Thank you. There was so much to unpack in this conversation. Reflecting on it, I wrote down five points. Number one, education has the power to transform lives. Teaching our kids to love learning is probably one of the greatest gifts we can give them to help them achieve their own goals. And it's not just in-classroom education. A high-key nature, reading stories together, and actions that you take or don't take 
every moment can be a teachable moment. Number two, the importance of a great mentor. You spread the fire. Ziadin's teacher changed his life with these four words. Find inspiring figures in your community and see if they're willing to mentor your kids. Number three, the power of storytelling. Ziaudin used to tell his kids the stories of inspiring figures. Figures who found their purpose in life and were agents of change. I'm planning to do the same thing with my kids and see if I can help them find their spark. Number four, togetherness. Family is the number one priority for Ziaudin and his wife. Spending time together at breakfast, lunch, dinner, listening to the kids and being the biggest supporter and encourager is part of Ziaudin's parenting style. And number five, model the way. How do you get your child to fight for what she believes in, even in the price of her own life? It's simple. You do it yourself. Ziaudin spoke up against the Taliban and risked his own life for what he believed in. Malala saw him and followed. Obviously, not all of us can and should take it to such an extreme. But if we want to help our kids to be agents of change and find their passion, it can help if we model the way for them. Kids don't listen to what we say. They learn by watching what we do. Thank you all for listening. For show notes, please visit RaisingToRise.com. Your support is greatly appreciated and I'm looking forward to continuing the parenting journey together.